You are listening to The Future of Work, Water Cooler Conversations, where business leaders share how they integrate humanity and technology to create a better workplace for today and tomorrow. This radio show and podcast is brought to you by Max 6 Entrepreneurial Center. And now let's listen in as Jen Burrell and Kyle McIntosh connect with today's valued guests. And we're back with the Future of Work Water Cooler Conversations. I'm Kyle McIntosh, as always, discussing our fascination with business leaders who have developed innovative approaches, healthy cultures, flexible workspaces, and seamless virtual technology. Today, we are switching up the show a little bit, and I'm excited to introduce you to my co-host for this show, Scott McIntosh, who is my father and business partner. And we will be speaking today with Brian Burns and Sherman Chu, both managing partners and co-founders of Greyhawk Capital, a venture capital business investing in businesses in the Southwest United States. Welcome to the show, all three of you. Thank you. Thank you. So first question, and let's go around the table this way for this question. I'd like to ask you as well, but where did you grow up and how did you get from there to where you sit today? And it's less of a business question and more of just say, uh, hey, we're four people sitting in this room. And I'm curious. Well, well, for me, it could be a long story. It's, <laughs> I've jumped around a little bit. Born on the East Coast, uh, Massachusetts, actually. Moved to California at the age of four, where I lived for 11 years in the Bay Area. Uh, Halfway through high school, my dad uh, uprooted us, moved to Tucson because he was working for IBM at the time and got uh, transferred with a promotion there to the shiny new facility. So finished high school there, went to a college at University of Arizona with my uh, degree in marketing, moved overseas for about a year, Taiwan specifically, uh, to get some work experience. And then... um, Applied to some different graduate schools, uh, went to Texas A&M for my MBA. So, and I ended up living in Texas for the next eight and a half years. After graduate school, I went to work for Bank One in their Dallas office uh, for the next six and a half years. And then um, 95 is when I came back to Arizona to help manage uh, our first fund called Cornerstone. Uh, and I've been back to, I've been here in Arizona ever since and enjoying it, obviously. Great. Yeah, great. <laughs> What about you, Ryan? Uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, I actually grew up in Iowa, small town in Iowa, although it's grown quite a bit since I was there. A town called Ankeny, and uh, after high school, you know, good Iowa, and I went to Iowa State University uh, in Ames, Iowa. And strangely, after a couple years there, I went on a spring break to visit a couple of frat brothers who had moved out to ASU, and uh, when I came out. It was a freak snowstorm in Iowa for spring break week. We got about 36 inches. I hopped in the Delta 88 with a couple other guys. We came out here to Tempe. You know, of course, spring baseball was going on. Everybody was hanging out at the fountain. So then I went back and had to convince my folks that it was all about the academic opportunity of moving (laughs) to ASU. Fortunately, they were saints. They supported me in everything I did. I moved out to... uh, Arizona to go to ASU in 79, ended up graduating in 81, uh, went to work for Arthur Anderson, the CPA firm, who was the largest in Phoenix at the time, for about eight years, then got into the investment business and met Sherman, and we became partners in the late 90s. Exciting. (laughs) Scott here, and I kind of co-host sitting in for uh, Jennifer and also what is originally panned. I'm, I'm kind of a guest as I'm, I'm just excited, uh, Sherman and Brian, and to have you guys in Greyhawk Capital. I've known of uh, 
Greyhawk Capital for, for many, many years and recently became an investor. And so just uh, excited for this possibility that we're able to uh, able to do this. I've told my story so many times in so many ways, but I was just, uh, born in Seattle, grew up in New York and uh, high school in Ohio and then came out to Arizona. I'm a wildcat as well. Uh, sorry for all you Sun Devil fans. I'm married <laughs> to a Sun Devil, so uh, it's mixed, but it became an engineer somehow. I fought my way through and I had a career in mining and uh, uh, worked in deep underground mining all of my, uh, my career. There uh, wasn't much of any of that in, in Arizona. It was Colorado. It was, uh, it was Idaho. It was the Philippines and uh, Canada. And 1993, jumped off an entrepreneurial cliff, uh, April Fool's Day, 93, and, and bought a business. And, and Kyle was, how old were you in, 90, in 93? Uh, nine, 10. 19 yeah. years old? <laughs> nine or 10. Yeah. 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 And, and so a young family and uh, 10 years of survival, five years of rock and roll. And uh, uh, that was a, a big success that allows me to sit here today and, and, uh, Kyle and I uh, uh, got together working, and uh, Max Six uh, came out of that. And uh, uh, now we're doing some different, uh, uh, some very different things. So just happy to be here with uh, with everybody. Thank you. So before we get into more detailed questions and what we want to talk about, I think it would help for anybody listening. Could you guys describe Greyhawk Capital in broad strokes, and and what is it that you guys do as a business? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we're a venture capital firm, really investing in early growth stage software companies throughout uh, Western U.S. We tend to lead more of those, you know, in our backyard here in the Southwest, but we do invest anywhere um, in the continental U.S. We're generally writing checks of anywhere from one to five million dollars in these companies. Uh, then we uh, participate at the board level to help these companies grow and uh, reach a, a, a good exit at some point. We're generally in, in our funds. We 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 have to raise funds every so many years. Uh, they're you know they're blind pools, and um, the funds we've had have been sixty to 70 million in size, uh, from which we deploy into fifteen or sixteen companies within each each fund. At this point, you know Sherman and I have been doing this together along with our uh, other partners Brian and Leigh for. Uh, quite a while. And we have some, you know, fairly spe- specific criteria that we're looking for in these companies. So we probably end up looking at over 100 opportunities for every one that we end up investing mm-hmm. in, something like that. So, you know, it, it, it's kind of a matching process. And that doesn't mean the other 99 are not great companies. It just means for whatever reason, they don't fit sort of the criteria that we've kind of set for ourselves over 25 years of making mistakes in investing and in order to continue to refine the process. Sherman, as you, uh, uh, Scott here, as you uh, said, we're early stage. I mean, there's a a broad spectrum of what early stage is. is We at Max 6 here, we've got a lot of uh, solopreneurs who are starting something and then we're involved in the angel investment world and uh, Uh uh, you're in, in, in many respects much later stage than that. But I mean, just maybe just uh, where do you see yourselves fitting that ecosystem of uh, from uh, startups through and, and uh, uh, where you are and maybe where companies go as they exit from uh, uh, from Greyhawk? Yeah, absolutely. So you're right. The, a company goes through its life, as, as a company goes through its life cycle, it'll raise capital from different sources, different categories of uh, capital providers. We are usually what they call Series A, which means we're usually the first institutional investor that comes in after uh, perhaps the uh, angel stage. And then prior to the angel stage, it's usually family and friends to get these companies off the ground. 
And then following that, well, and let me be more specific. These are companies, when I say Series A, they have uh, a product in the market usually uh, and are generating revenues. And our specific criteria is more kind of two to five million in annual recurring revenues. And of course, thereafter, we do hold dry powder support the companies in subsequent rounds, uh, Series B, Series C, et cetera. Uh, But there are, you start moving into the territory of other types of later stage funds that you alluded to, Scott, that will come into those rounds as well. You know, our, our exit, you are asking a little bit about exits. Well, yeah, and uh, where the, if, if the company is still raising capital and is there a point at which they may have outgrown Greyhawk or oh, yeah. venture capital? And we hope so. Does it go public then or is there private equity or are there other 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 yeah. sort of groups that uh, just that whole, whole series that companies may go through? Oh, absolutely. We tend to favor capital-efficient business models. Having said that, though, you know, the round sizes have grown over time. These companies do need, uh, in a Series A round, anywhere from 5 to $10 million to have a proper runway, you know, achieve the milestones they want to. As they continue to progress, they will need additional rounds of capital, you know, uh, beyond us. Uh, we will support the companies, usually maybe two, three rounds, uh, and likely a declining amount. And then thereafter, what they'll need to do is really go out to raise money from uh, later stage funds that could come in with bigger checks. Yeah. And then ultimately, you know, there are different forms of, uh, I guess there's different ways that can go uh, as they continue to raise capital. Maybe we no longer uh, participate, you know, uh, in these larger later stage rounds. And ultimately, it may be an exit for us as well. We're starting to see more and more secondary type transactions uh, where these large investors come in, they run, write big checks. Company doesn't want to take the dilution, so they allow them to, to write a smaller check for the growth capital, perhaps, and then a second check to take existing shareholders, investors out. Typically, you know, we're looking for an M&A transaction for our exit at some point down the road. Okay. You can't always control that. You know, there's market conditions and those sort of things. But um, but we are seeing secondaries as as a very active market and becoming, you know, certainly uh, entering the mix for us as partial liquidity and or full exit. Okay. So question on the other side of it. That's what ideally happens at the end. M&A, we graduate this company out of the uh, working with you guys and onto the next level. But how does it look in the beginning? If I'm a, a entrepreneur, I'm doing four or five million dollars a year right now. I've got a high growth opportunity. How do I know that this is something I could be looking at and makes sense for my business? I mean, hey, raising funds and getting extra cash sounds good, but it's not always the right answer for every business. Absolutely. Um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, you could have a very successful lifestyle business as a sole proprietor, right? Uh, when you take on capital, you have to be prepared for, you know, a very long-term relationship with your investment partners, and you're going to take dilution, right? So, and then control, those two things, you know, valuation, uh, control are the two most sensitive areas for any entrepreneur. I think the things they need to consider uh, perhaps uh, would be, uh, one, is this uh, capital provider the right uh, partner for me? You got to make sure there's the right chemistry. Again, you're going to be working together for a very long time. But even before that, I think uh, there's the company needs to decide whether it is one that has that kind of opportunity that, you know, because the dilution, you, you have to make overcome the dilution you're taking 
for much greater value at the end of the rainbow, right? So there has to be that opportunity there that's worth pursuing. Otherwise, you know, you could very well keep 100% of a smaller pie and be and do very well. And, you know, you mentioned capital efficiency, which I think is um, sort of important to Greyhawk, given that, you know, we're not in Silicon Valley. As a matter of fact, we're mostly investing in what would be considered to be underserved venture capital markets. So in those markets, you know, unlike, again, Silicon Valley or maybe the Northeast, we don't have billion-dollar funds. So the check sizes that the funds can write, and we almost always participate in a syndicate, are smaller checks. So in order to make the same progress, we're looking for those companies to do it, hopefully on less resources, which benefits everybody. Say, if you can exit a company for $200 million and it took $20 million, that's much better than the company that exits for $300 million that took $50 million. And you guys understand, I know you guys understand the math on that. So understand the math, but say more about that underserved market, what that means compared to Silicon Valley. And I'm really curious where Greyhawk fits in this compare, contrast Silicon Valley and, and, and what that underserved market really is. You know, I think, Scott, in, in, our, in those markets, those underserved markets, we're typically, funds like ours are, are typically a better fit than those Silicon Valley funds because we can deploy checks of two or three million dollars. You know, if you're a billion dollar fund, it's hard to do anything less than 20 million dollars at a time. The kind of software and SaaS companies that we're looking at in our market don't really need 20 million dollars, nor would it necessarily be advantageous for them to take 20 million at this point. So it's kind of a related question, but as as uh, I'm just really, it's just as, you know, I've, I've met you guys, I've talked to you guys, and I'm I'm still kind of kind of kind of kind of learning here. But there's valuation, there's control, the two things Sherman you mentioned. Then, then you also mentioned chemistry, as we talk with younger entrepreneurs, and too often they think money's all the same. I just need money. They say no, money is not all the same, and you really need to find somebody who really understands you. And so that, that word chemistry, as you talk about the word chemistry, uh, what does that mean to you yeah. as you look at an investment? Well, um, that means getting to know each other, frankly, <laughs> at a personal level. And a lot of the companies we do invest in, we actually have known the the founder CEOs for maybe a couple of years or more. So it's about establishing that rapport and relationship uh, during that time, uh, just to make sure, I mean, you're comfortable working with each other. Right. So that I think that's, that's kind of what I'm Speaking to on chemistry, you know, a lot of these companies we invested in, they were frankly too early when they first came to us. But we do, you know, stay on top of their progress and get to know management during that time frame. And, you know, I, I think we look at it, you know, just the opposite, the flip side of the coin that you're talking about from a Greyhawk standpoint. If we think, if we don't think we can provide anything other than capital or a check, it's not a good investment opportunity for us. So, so let's stay on this chemistry thing for a minute here, because I think you're. I think what we're alluding to is this uh, this mad search for money that a lot of entrepreneurs seem to be on, and it's all about if I had that money, I could do this, and it's just any way I could find it. That's what I'm going after. And I, what we're talking about here is the chemistry between the investor and the CEO, the the team, the group. How much time do you guys spend though on the culture that's there in the company, the chemistry that's there with that team, 
you're investing money into this tech SaaS company, but how much of it is about the people in that business? Well, people's always uh, an important ingredient to any successful investment. It's kind of three main blocks, and there's there's subcategories, but it's going to be management, product, and market, right, for us that we're broadly evaluating. Uh, In terms of culture, you know, I guess... uh, yeah, we do in our due diligence process spend time with management as well as even before, again, we uh, uh, move on to evaluating investment. The culture itself, I guess, uh, should have proven itself at that point in time because we are looking at the financial traction, but there is still going to be and the success they've had up to that point, right? Uh, we want to see some momentum. Uh, we want to see the dogs eating the dog food, as they say. But there's still a lot of unknowns because at that point in time, the team is still quite small, and you have to fill in the gaps and expand that team as you grow and scale, which is you, what you want to see. But there's always going to be that risk as you start doing that. People are the great opportunity and most of the time the issues as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, we should probably make it clear, too, from a Greyhawk standpoint, you know, we're involved in, in, in helping set the direction of these companies, the overall strategy, you know, the senior leadership. But we don't want to manage these companies on a day-to-day basis. We don't want to instill necessarily a culture in these companies. Yet, healthy cultures that seem to be successful for those companies, and it may be different types of cultures, we will support those and see how we can add to them. As I said, you know, we do typically have board seats. About 80% of the time we have board seats. The other 20% of the time we have at least observation rights. And we do get involved, at least at the executive level, when I talk about expanding the team, like we'll be involved with the interview process, uh, as well as perhaps even referring some candidates from our own network to help the companies out. Got another question related to exits and just some context around it. And our listeners can't see, but on the screen behind you, this is conscious capitalism. And there's uh, without going into too much about what that is, it, to simplistically, it's about investing. It's about long-term versus short-term. And the simplistic analogy, Wall Street quarterly reporting causes executives to make decisions that are sometimes short-term focused. And short-term, if you're my employee, I pay you less money, I make more money. Versus long-term thinking, if you're my employee, I can invest in you and your development and you become more productive and all those kind of things. At the angel investment level, I mean, we, any investor is looking for an exit. The problem with exits is it puts a short-term focus on things. Uh, And so this is something in conscious capitalism that I just continue. The best investments would be you invest forever. And there are venture funds and and private equity that uh, I'm invested in, uh, Satori Capital, that invests with a 99-year time horizon. That doesn't mean exits don't happen. But I'm just curious, how do you you look at that where I think we all know it's easy to say long-term is better Yet, as a venture capital fund, you've got you've got a limited time frame at which you need exits. And how do you, how do you balance yeah. those things? And yeah, good question. Uh, first, uh, how do you, how do you define long term? <laughs> <laughs> we think five years is a pretty long term, but uh, again, we can't control the exits. Uh, unfortunately, for a fund like ours, we do have a finite life, you know, to these funds. So we do have to work towards exit within a reasonable amount of time. Yeah, you know, we model everything really kind of five years. We start getting a little antsy because of the time constraints imposed on funds. Uh, but there are ways to make it work. with, And that's a conversation, frankly, we have to have with management teams up front, right? To understand their goals and make sure there's some alignment. But there are ways you could get uh, around that where if management wants to continue on, if it's an M&A, there are certainly opportunities 
for the company to continue to, if you have the right buyer, uh, operate as a standalone and, ha- and keep management in place. IPO, if the company goes public, IPO should not be looked at as just an exit strategy. It could be for investors, but from a management standpoint, it's really just a capital strategy. And so that's a situation where they'll continue on, right, uh, if, that, if that is you know, uh, what they desire. So there are there are some different options like that. Yeah, um, I think you're I think you're right in that our best exits generally, you know, the investors like us, we're gone. We, you know, we've been bought out or we've taken our money, but the company that's whatever's made the company successful, which in software companies is usually the people, you know, they have the opportunity to go on with usually a much bigger acquirer who now has resources to help continue to develop, market the product. And depending on where your individual head's at, you know, do I want to be a corporate guy? Do I want to go back and start the next thing? I think it just creates potentially more opportunities. Right. And I think you've both described what to me is the real answer as we talk about this in conscious capitalism, is having the conversations up front that as Mm -hmm. you take on an investor, there are certain tensions that are there and and knowing in advance in a five-year time frame, here's what we need to be looking at. And then how do we manage those to for the best success of Greyhawk as a fund and, and uh, the investors and, and the uh, managers in the company? And so it's just uh, something to be managed through the, through the relationship. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I'm curious about, and we've talked about uh, there's a different subset of investor class in Silicon Valley than elsewhere. Well, we're elsewhere in Arizona. What does that look like in Arizona? What does the ecosystem look like for venture capital, for fundraising, for entrepreneurship? Are we uh, specializing in our own way? Are we finding different types of companies that really thrive because they're part of this ecosystem here? What does that look like? We've seen, you know, we've been in this market a long time, so we've seen uh, some different cycles. It does kind of come in waves. But broadly speaking, it's, I would say it's still kind of early days for Arizona to build it, fully build out an ecosystem takes time. And uh, Silicon Valley has certainly done that very well. Here, you know, we, we had a good activity in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s until the bubble bursted. Then, then the market receded. I think over the last seven, eight years, we've seen a lot of good effort from different Kind of parts of the the value chain, you know, come together to help build this ecosystem. You know, folks like ACA, Arizona uh, Tech Council, the GPEC, et cetera, the uh, ATI, right? Who's and been very Desert active? Desert Angels, what, what yeah. those groups are doing for. I think early. they all contribute to building this ecosystem. Uh, and then uh, what we need to see are more success stories. You know, the life locks, the forty first parameters uh, of the world with good exits. But thereafter, they really need to stick around, right? So that you could spin off. Well, one, you could keep that, keep that here locally and then spin off the talent, spin off the management uh, talent and the uh, capital mm-hmm. that could go with all feedback into the ecosystem. And everything has to kind of be working at the same time. So sometimes it feels like a couple steps forward, step back, but I think we're making good progress. We've been seeing a lot of good uh, early stage activity these last seven, eight years. And uh, I think uh, it's just a matter of of giving them some time. I think over the next two to five years, we'll see some good things come out of it, this market. You you listed a number of groups, the ACAA, ATI, Desert Angels, uh, these groups, uh, Tech Council. How much of it is, 
it's great that we now have these resources in Arizona and more resources are better for these companies that are starting. And also, how much work, I guess, do you do with those groups? Do you collaborate with those groups or is it just a nice to have with more resources in one place? No, uh, one point there is that I think these resources have kind of come together and uh, uh, there's been better uh, kind of collaboration between these resources from what we've seen over the last two decades. uh, Because early days, it was a little more disparate in terms of the efforts. And sometimes uh, people can step on each other's toes (laughs) doing it. But I think there's a better better collaboration today. Uh, We work with all of them. I mean, Scott could speak to his involvement at ATI. I mean, uh, some of those deals uh, coming out of ATI can be candidates for Greyhawk we're, as they graduate. We've been very involved in the ACA's Arizona Innovation Challenge uh, granting over the years as an evaluator and uh, as a judge, you know, been involved with a number of programs uh, through ASU and worked pretty closely. You know, I, I actually agree with Sherman that the uh, early stage support, including groups like Max 6, is probably as strong as I've seen it in 25 years in the Valley. Frankly, what's missing is that later stage groups like Greyhawk, as Sherman mentioned, there were once three or four at least groups like ours, similar size and interests in Arizona. You know, that's arguably one or two today, which means that in order to do an Arizona deal, which we still do about 40% of our deals are Arizona deals, but in order to do an Arizona deal with syndicate partners, we typically have to import that capital from Colorado or Utah or somewhere, you know, regionally. That syndication and that's something as we kind of talked about uh, Arizona to tech investors, is, which we kind of been a partner for 10 years, is from 10 years ago when we were uh, 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 at ATI and Desert Angels and in Tucson as an entrepreneur at that earlier stage, they had to go to Desert Angels and they did their pitch and they did their due diligence. They, then they went to ATI, they did their pitch, they did their due diligence. It was tough because, I mean, just you're, you're on a road and, and, and what's happened at the, at the angel level is angel groups are now syndicating and, and yeah. uh, Desert Angels, ATI, and I think there's 20-some uh, groups in the, in the Southwest that are, are, are syndicating. And so I'm just interested as, as, as you talk about that, is that uh, that just creates more opportunity for flow. If it's a very early stage, uh, uh, an angel group by itself could invest in it. If it's a little bit later stage, angel groups can syndicate and then get up to the level where it may flow to a, uh, a Greyhawk. But then you're also syndicating uh, uh, with others. And so my, my question of all that where do your investors come from? And and I'm 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 a recent investor, and so I know where I came from. But as, as we look at Phoenix as a market, it's been so real estate dominated, and I think the real estate investment mindset is so different than what this is. I've I've had this mission to try and tickle a few more people from real estate in in some way. But and we're, as, as we look at Arizona and investment, and uh, what message might you send to others that uh, might be interested in this thing from the real estate mindset to others to be interested in this whole it's that whole ecosystem, not just Greyhawk. Sky, yeah, it's just, you're, it sounds like you're asking about our investor base and, yeah, within the fund. Your investor base, and, and then uh, okay. as, as you look to expand I, that through syndication, is. Uh, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll start out, Sherman. And just, yeah. I'll, I care, you know, unlike many markets, the bigger venture capital markets like a Silicon Valley, you know, Arizona really has no institutional investment as measured by some sort of state matching program or 
major pension funds in the state supporting venture capital, which we do see from time to time in some of the the surrounding states. So our LPs by necessity really come from high net worth, family offices, and a lot of those have been successful real estate investors who are looking for potentially some diversification opportunities. Oh, yeah. They also include, uh, I mean, executives uh, or CEOs of private public companies, many of them from Arizona. Uh, This time around on Fund 3, 90% of our investors are from the Arizona community. So we've got kind of great support there that we're very uh, pleased with. What... uh, so this base of people that are participating in the funds, uh, are they providing value other than monetary as well to help these companies? Is there much strategic work that goes back and forth? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think uh, one thing we're seeing this time around as well, I should have touched upon, is these executives, actually a lot of them have been coming out of the tech industry. Uh, so we certainly look forward to seeing more uh, collaboration efforts with with our own investors uh, from standpoint of deal flow and or you know, utilizing their skill sets within our portfolio, perhaps uh, a board seat, executive chairman. Sometimes it's just uh, assisting us with due diligence, you know, being able to look at the technology or a particular industry vertical. Uh, so we, we, we have and we will continue to tap into our investor base uh, for those type of roles. I think that's one thing that we, we think about and talk about the entrepreneur side all the time of uh, you can't just look to follow the money. You've got to have this good strategic fit and this good uh, culture fit or whatever it is with your financiers. But from the other perspective of being an investor, I mean, that's what makes this fun, right? Like that's the money side is is great. Let's hope to grow this over time. But I get to work with a cool new company that's creating something of value for people that they you know hasn't ever been a part of this world before. Like, that's what gets yeah. me excited every day. I mean, you guys have got to be, like, living this. Just, it's got to feel great. Kyle, so, it does beat public accounting in the, <laughs> in the excitement range, yes. <laughs> uh, it's been fun. It's been a fun journey. It's uh, 10 or so years ago when uh, I had sold my business. And what am I going to do when this was about the same time you and I were getting together, uh, Kyle, to, to start Max 6. And uh uh, somebody in California who I consider a friend and a mentor and said, hey, you ought to look at angel investing. It's very intellectually stimulating. Okay. That, and so I, oh my gosh, yes, intellectually stimulating and emotionally stimulating. And it can be all kinds of things as you have your successes and your losses. But it's, uh, it's I mean, it's where I get my, at Max 6, where we have earlier stage companies, obviously, but uh, we, we have real estate and desks and offices. That's a commodity. But what uh, what we're here for, what Kyle and I are both here for, is what we love is uh, helping entrepreneurs mm-hmm. grow their their businesses. And that's kind of, that's not in the lease so much. That's, uh, it's just a fascinating world to be in, to invest in, and to uh, work with companies, uh, companies like this. So, yeah, it's, uh, you, you well, must you, really enjoy it. You remember, Scott, when, when we, we were talking a, a, a few months back, you know, a little bit about your background. You know, Sherman and I and Greyhawk, we think it's important to understand, you know, a little bit about where our, you know, limited partners come from. And, you know, in your case, it just happened to be kind of a crazy coincidence that a week before I got a mining deal right. in. And, right. I, you know, gosh, mining, it looks kind of interesting, but who might know something about mining? You know, <laughs> a week later, we're talking and you go into your background, you know, and so it didn't end up leading, 
you know, to an investment yet, or it probably won't, but still, you know, it was so good to have someone. And, you know, we're fortunate, I would say, in a number of areas to have LPs expert in a certain area. I'd say digital security being one of those areas where we Mm -hmm. have access to, you know, good expertise outside the fund. I remember that. That was fascinating. As uh, and as, as people think about mining, whatever that was, but it's uh, that that particular company was it was a safety uh, application, and that uh, having alertness, gro- right? Alertness. Gro- gro- grown up in the mining industry, I mean, safety and and, and for uh, we uh, be careful what I say here, but safety is number one. And well, 1970s safety was number one until it came to production, and then but <laughs> but it, so safety really is. There's a culture of safety in the mining industry, and how do we? Uh, and so this this uh, uh, app, this device, as I recall, had some kind of facial recognition to see how aware is somebody. And so you can do drug tests, alcohol tests, and but there's something that's just fascinating to me where safety, whether it's mining or construction, as these technologies come along, uh, uh, what thing to do to uh, evolve an industry. So speaking of these companies that come along, what does a great company look like that is perfect for what would fit into the parameters of what you're looking for? And then are there a few cool companies you're working with right now that, hey, there's something really exciting that they have that watch out world, here it comes in the next few years? Well, a strong company that fits our profile at, the, at that stage is one, like I said, maybe generating two to five million AR, but they're showing you know a pretty strong growth rate. Uh, at that stage, the company is kind of beyond, you know, R&D risk. They have a product in the market, obviously. The use of funds at that point in time will be primarily sales and marketing. Uh, on the management side, you know, we're looking for good leaders, obviously. Uh, they, are, they may be, and a lot of times they are first-time CEOs, but they've had good, uh, some experience as an executive within either a large Fortune 500 company and or earlier stage entrepreneurial companies as well in their background. The market they're going after should be big. And that's easy to say because we're talking about something in the future, you know, but they have to be kind of, they have to have like a billion dollar opportunity. Not that they're going to become necessarily a billion dollar revenue company. It's about uh, optimizing your chances for success. So, so if you get 2%, 3% of a multi-billion dollar industry or market, uh, you will be very successful. So those, and then obviously on the product side, we're looking for uh, a, a good, strong problem that they're solving. They should have barriers to uh, entry, you know, some uniqueness to the product or complexity to the product and or IP. Software is a little harder to actually have patents. We see it once in a while, but we don't really rely on that per se. Uh, but we want to see at least they have a couple of years head start, you know, in the marketplace they're going after. And what about that that product side of it? Is there an industry that you guys specialize in, or is it uh, all over the place? Great question. We are journalists, really, at the end of the day, but some recurring themes across our funds have included fintech, cybersecurity, healthcare healthcare IT, uh, and then more recently, we've been doing more in MarTech as well, uh, at the end of Fund 2, going to Fund 3. And it's not like we we predicted COVID-19, but but I think uh, post-COVID-19, marketing has become uh, very, and, and digital marketing in particular, has become relevant. And, and uh, the, the decision to focus on software really kind of goes back to fund size and efficiency again. You know, we uh, tend to stay away from opportunities that require a lot of working capital, lots of inventory, you know, fixtures and so on. 
you know, it's basically a couple guys with a whiteboard. Usually we're at the stage just after that, but you're mostly paying for smart people to develop good software at that point. And we focus on the stage we do because we're really not in a position to just look at someone's technology and be able to evaluate and say, hey, that's that's great. You know, That's not uh, our background. No, uh, we do have people we could bring in to help look at the technology side of it. But really, again, at that point in time, they have customers. They, they are showing some financial traction. We could evaluate all those things that kind of speak to the product, right? And we will talk with customers in our due diligence to get feedback. Those, those tend to be very insightful. So as you're, as you're, we all have just come out of a pandemic or we're coming out of a pandemic and lots of companies pivoted and uh, uh, how did uh, the Greyhawk invested companies uh, manage? Were there many pivots or how did, how did they do coming through that? You know, uh, they were all affected in varying degrees. Uh, we have a telehealth company in our portfolio that got a significant, uh, pardon the pun, shot in the arm. <laughs> with COVID-19 and uh, way surpassed their, their plan because of it. We have... Uh, another healthcare, but, you know, that was a healthcare, oh, yeah. but, but yet another healthcare opportunity because it focused on elective cardio procedures went the other way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, but I think generally, you know, as, as you've heard Sherman and I uh, say today, our portfolio primarily SaaS softwares in, in industries, it's always sort of focused on collaboration, remote use, efficiencies, and so on. So overall, I think we and our limited partners are very pleased at the way the portfolio came through the uh, pandemic. Yeah, the portfolio has uh, come through very well. Uh, in fact, is uh, showing great performance today. I guess uh, to, to cite a metric, you know, we look at TVPI, total value to paid in capital, and we're at about 5x on fund two, which we're very pleased with. You know, that essentially means if we sold everything today at the value uh, the portfolio is at, uh, we would return to investors about five times uh, their, their investment. Uh, but to illustrate another, um, again, the, the strength of digital marketing, we have a social media management company out of Southern California perform quite well. Their customers include bricks and mortar companies, uh, folks like Anytime Fitness, uh, Sports Clips Hair Salons. Company did not miss a beat through COVID-19. So it really illustrates the the power of digital marketing and the relevance of digital marketing in today's uh, environment. But that's another example. Yeah, again, we, we could have been focused on transportation or retail or hospitality, but Fortunately, that's never been our focus, and you know we consider ourselves very fortunate. So, another pandemic sort of related question as we're coming out. I mean, the world has changed, and uh, as a show, it's the future of work. And part of that is, as uh, all companies, uh, Max Six, we've got real estate, mm-hmm. and people are coming back and putting their toes in the water. And and uh, but there's, it, it seems like there's going to be a hybrid model of work, and people working from home and and not. And so, kind of two parts of the question is is what are what are you guys and and your companies uh, like how many employees are they working from home are they working from an office uh, uh, and are there any sort of innovations that you see coming uh, through your invested companies that uh, this is whole future of work and where we're working is evolving yeah we have seen a lot of interesting things that uh, were and I think the result of COVID-19 uh, collaborations you mentioned we've seen some different things in that area you know like uh 
improvement upon the Zoom platform, perhaps. Well, we're looking at one now that's kind of a video platform uh, built into uh, short messages, which uh, I think uh, makes a lot of sense in the new work environment. We've seen a lot of, well, we've seen a lot more telehealth uh, situations too recently. Uh, but healthcare is certainly ripe for uh, innovation, disruption. Yeah, and in general, with the type of companies we look at, you know, I mentioned a few minutes ago, at, uh, at this point, they're primarily spending money on people. Probably the second biggest expense is space, right? Or it has been up to this point. Right. And as you guys know, you're real estate guys, you know better than this. But when we invest and the company is trying to enter into a lease and anticipate while they're growing like crazy what their needs are going to be in five years they never get it right, right? You know, and so we're either going to be scrambling for space or trying to sublease. You know, sometime during that period. In that way, moving more to remote and uh, it has made our business a little easier in that we can again continue to focus on the people and not as much the space. I think what's fascinating, and this is the conversation still going on, is. We're seeing these much larger organizations that are saying, okay, well, we just figured out through technology that space just became a luxury. <laughs> we don't have to have it, but now we can treat it as just a tool. If we need it for certain parts of our workforce, we've, we know what we need or we're figuring out what we need, but it doesn't have to be this uh, sort of pervasive thought that was out there that everybody's got to be in the office in the same place with a big footprint. We just don't have to do that anymore. So it's an exciting time to see a scary and exciting as we're in this market, but uh, uh, exciting to see what comes out of it. I think the answer is just more flexibility and, and uh, uh, you know, hey, we're people like us and Max 6 and us are here for uh, what do you need right now? Because who knows what the hell it's going to look like in a year, let alone five years. So uh, let us help you grow and grow with you. Yeah, yeah that's, makes that's, a lot of sense. It's fun as Max Six. It, it's fun. It's 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 scary, exciting. It's it's disruptive, and all of our customers right now are trying to figure out: Do we need space or not? And we're a part of that conversation with them. And obviously, we have space to sell. But uh, the key thing we're trying to sell now is flexibility and giving anybody. You know, I'm signing that five year yeah. lease, and in some ways, we'd love to have a five year lease, and it locks in, and, and we know what that is. But that not be, may not be the solution. But flexibility needs, so. has probably never been more valuable than what it is today. Right. Yeah. And that's if a company's growing or or contracting, mm -hmm. which can happen as well. And so that's. Uh, I mean, that was when I bought the first building that we have here. I was growing a company, and that's that's why I did it. It gave me flexibility to grow the company, and now that's what we're trying to uh, uh, do ourselves. It's just it's a fascinating place to be here, as as all those questions are. Uh, uh, are coming up, and I'm I'm just as it's going to be fun to follow uh, uh, the innovations that come along being connected with Greyhawk and the companies that you're working with. Yeah. So, you guys have been doing this for a while. How's it been going? What's the history look like of uh, the last twenty years or so of of Greyhawk? Well, certainly we've been. Uh, I think this current environment has been strong. I don't know, you know, how long it'll hold up necessarily. Uh, but uh, we've also been. Uh, we've also seen the down cycles, you know. So over the twenty years, though, I think innovation certainly uh, will continue. From from our standpoint, a lot of opportunities uh, to look at. You know, software will continue to proliferate, expand, it's become more important than ever. I think is what. COVID-19 has shown, because right. uh, these companies, whether you're low-tech 
or not, you need to be nimble. Um, so I think one we're, thing we're excited. One thing people are surprised when they you know start to look at Greyhawk closely is the fact that um, about two thirds of our investments end up being financially successful. Now, financially successful in this case is a low bar, one dollar more. Yeah. Than, than, <laughs> but I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, but in the venture capital industry, you typically find more like twenty five to thirty percent of an invest of an investment make money as opposed to our 60 or 70%. And, you know, we really like to think that that's because of a very thorough due diligence process that over 25 years, as I said, we've, you know, refined and, you know, if you make a mistake, you change the process so you don't repeat that mistake in the future. And uh, I, you know, I think that's one of the things we're most proud of is that, we have a pretty low failure rate for a venture capital fund that's aiming for home run investments. That is definitely something to be proud of. <laughs> I mean, we do have a lot of scars. <laughs> <laughs> that's something to be proud of too, in a different way. Yeah. <laughs> all, all those yeah, scars we're still are, learning. They're, they're learning. That's scar. always learning. The scar is learning. You fell down, you scraped your knee. Let's let me at least make a new mistake uh, yeah. the next time. Yeah, we will. So it's been <laughs> 20 years, and you're just on fund three right now, and and so which is still I'm an investor in fund uh, fund three, and so that's not a whole lot of change over time, and it is it's 20 years and a lot of success. Um, fund three is coming to a close, I guess, as uh, as the raise, and uh, how many how many investments are there in fund three that you've uh, you've made so far? Yeah, so far we've made two investments in fund three. Okay, uh, they were smaller checks just because of where we were in the fundraising process, uh, but we're about to move into kind of a full capacity mode here. Yeah. I don't know if we mentioned, but typically a full fund would be somewhere around 15 or 16 investments that we'll make in a, in a single fund. 15 or 16. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Part of that's, again, one of the learnings uh, over time. Part of that's by design because we do take board seats. We're active with the boards of our portfolio companies, and we don't really want any partner to have more than five board uh, be on five boards at one point in time. Yeah. That just starts stretching your bandwidth. Kind of ties into an earlier topic we were talking about with the Arizona uh, tech investors is Kyle and I are also investors in Arizona tech investors and uh, uh, a group for Arizona tech and AGI is going to be a part of the Greyhawk uh, Hawk Fund yeah. uh, coming together. Very excited so, about that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so it's uh, just yeah. as this ecosystem is evolving and uh, it's just kind of fun to watch as uh, it becomes more solidified here in Arizona. We, we've Absolutely. known that group well and, and know Jim Golka, who's yep. headed it up well and, and had a close working relationship with Jim through a number of those activities we were mentioning earlier. So we're delighted to have ATI on board. Yeah. Does Greyhop get any point? Like, what does the vision look like? We want to keep doing what we've been doing for 20 plus years and doing it better than we did it the day before and learning from the scars. Uh, <laughs> or is there, you know, is there this grand vision that's uh, uh, different from what it is today? Love to keep doing it, but we all have to retire at some point in time. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we spent uh, many years building the company. Certainly, uh, certainly like to, you know, continue, continue the business forward and the brand. So we have like brought on recently a label L. You know, he could uh, play a pretty significant role in the future of Greyhawk as we think about uh, succession planning and such. But we do want the Greyhawk uh, uh, brand to continue. Is the work that Lib's doing, uh, the, uh, 
Israeli uh, uh, companies and there's just the, the tie-in with that. Is that uh, outside of Greyhawk? Is that something that, hey, we've got a resource here inside of Greyhawk that we can really open ourselves up to this to new markets and technologies? Yeah, we should uh, clarify that uh, label. Yeah, was brought on to help us with this uh, Israeli strategy. This is a new strategy. It's an incremental to our current uh, deal flow. We started looking at Israel market because we had some exposure in Fund 2 and actually in Fund 3 now to companies with uh, the Israeli DNA. And we liked what we saw. And what we, uh, as we looked into the Israeli market, what we found was that they have, these companies have a lot of characteristics that we seek out in these underserved markets outside of Silicon Valley here in the US as well. Uh, for example, they've been able to bootstrap longer. So when they get to a series A round, they have pretty good traction. They're also very strong in certain themes like healthcare IT, fintech, cybersecurity, which also overlaps with Greyhawk's uh, strategy very well. But we are not looking to invest into Arizona per se. We're looking to invest in these companies that are looking to come over into the U.S. and or have already come into the U.S. and we can help them. You said uh, Arizona, but you meant Israel. We're not investing in Israel. Oh, sorry. We're, we're definitely investing in Arizona. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're not investing in, in Israel. We really don't have the bandwidth to do due diligence over there. These companies probably started in Israel, spent some time in Israel, and have now become U.S. companies, and we're trying to identify the best and brightest of those early yeah. on. And it's really Labe that, that's uh, Labe, really yeah. doing that for us. You know, uh, he, has, uh, he does have an outside organization that he started called the Arizona-Israel uh, Tech Alliance, and their mission is to recruit companies from Israel into Arizona specifically. And he's been instrumental in recruiting, like, dozen or so companies over the last three years. Uh, so he has a good network over there. Um, and uh, that's what we're looking for from Labe initially. This is beyond Labe as well. I mean, this is the uh, Governor Ducey, the state of Arizona, Arizona yep. Commerce Authority are also very tied in. And I think they've uh, seen uh, uh, Israel startup uh, state or startup, whatever they call well, it. Well, Labe was, yeah, yeah, responsible for actually yeah, so a lot of that Okay, so it's, yeah, initiative. Some, we're both yeah. desert climates and uh, some similarities uh, Absolutely. So, yeah, that, that's been interesting to uh, to watch. It was Labe that actually brought me into uh, Greyhawk. I'd known of Greyhawk for many years, yeah. but it was Labe. I met him through Conscious Capitalism, actually. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, fun connections. So, so somehow we've been talking for almost an hour. And oh, yeah. So we're, we're almost out of time. But I want to make uh, uh, time for a couple more questions here. One of them I always ask to anybody that's on the show, and it has nothing to do with anything we've been talking about. I'm just curious about it. And so I'm going to throw you a curveball here. And we're keeping track of these answers and we'll do something with them eventually, but not sure what yet. So the question, and for all three of you, and let's go around the same direction as last time as the first question, what is your favorite book of all time? I don't read a whole lot, but the, the last book uh, I thought that really made an impression on me was a book called uh, Endurance. It's about the journey, a real journey, true life story of a uh, ship captain explorer named Michael uh, Shackleton, I believe it was. Uh, the name of his ship was Endurance. It was making a, a trip. I forgot what year this was, but it was back in the old days, wooden ship. And uh, they make a, made a trek to uh, Antarctica, got trapped, ice crushed the ship, and they had to find their way back home from there, which was incredible. It was written in a, in a log form, which you think would be quite dry and boring, but it was uh, quite a page turner. And uh, really, really kept me engaged. But the story is amazing, uh, and and it's and it's 
I guess, poetic that it was the ship was named Endurance, and that was a whole. That's exactly what they had to go through to get to uh, safety again, uh, where no one died. Actually, wow! After several months of being uh, stranded, you see some analogies to these uh, startup <laughs> entrepreneurs. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Great, thank it's you. Important. Right. And uh, I, too, with the amount of reading we do for research and stuff, I'm a little embarrassed to say I don't do a whole lot of recreational reading now. But I would go back to the time I was 12 and I broke my leg one summer and read all the Tolkien books, uh, which, and you can imagine, you know, no computer, no internet, three channels on the TV. I pretty much read all day and got through all of it. And uh, It's been that long since you read a book? (laughs) (laughs) No, I have read one since then, but that probably sticks out the the, the most. Our other partner, Brian Smith, is a reader in the group. uh, He's a history buff, but uh, that's a good question for him, actually. (laughs) All of these are good answers, and I ask you too, but that's... I mean, if nothing else, this is building a library, a backlog of books I've got to read at some point. Yeah. It's, yeah. You know, I'm an avid reader, and I, I read I read for I, re, I read business books, and that's learning. And I'm a I'm a constant learner, and I I read uh, I mean Tolkien and all all that, and that's my sort of relaxation. The most life changing book was probably Atlas Shrugged, and so brand myself here. I'm not a political libertarian. I'm a philosophical libertarian. And, and there's a, a lot that can be debated there. But just from a, uh, just as we talk about capitalism, the economy, investment, and all of that, and uh, just one of the more life-changing books uh, uh, that I've uh, read. And it's a, it's a story, but it's, uh, there's a lot of philosophy uh, from Ayn Rand in that, uh, in that story. Uh, are you a Rush fan too? I, yep, yep. <laughs> Eighty <laughs> percent level. I don't. I don't agree. I'm a. I'm a philosophical libertarian. Probably eighty percent, and I'm. I'm whatever. And it is, uh, nobody a hundred percent. Sure. Yes. Great. Apologies to anybody I've set with that. No. Uh, no. No, no apologies. Uh, no. I'm sorry, Scott. I didn't mean Rush Limbaugh. Oh. I, I meant the band Rush, oh. who is a big Ayn Rand <laughs> so, source of of their music. Sorry. I did. I didn't mean to get political. No. We're going to have to delete that part. No, we won't. No, we won't. And, and, and the answer is yes on all counts. That was, uh, I love the answer. That was a curveball. Yeah. Kyle, your book. So oh, yeah. I, I listen to a lot of books and I read. And uh, I, you know, my favorite book of all time, it's not a business book and it's a Stephen King book. And it's uh, if, if it's not the Dark Tower series, it's it. And it's just... Mm. The, I've read every single one of his books that's not a novella, the longer books. And uh, I say this and people laugh all the time, but I'm not joking. I learned almost as much about business by reading books like that and just thinking about, oh, what would I do? Or what would someone do? And, and just reading books like that, mm. then, hey, here's a tactical book about something I need to learn about. And so, yeah. hey, no apologies here either. <laughs> Stephen King books. That's more interesting too. <laughs> uh, so last question. Any last things you want to say about Greyhawk to let any of the listeners know and let anybody know that's listening, how do we find you? Website or uh, email, anything you want to get out there? Yeah, our website is uh, www.greyhawkcapital.us. You can also find us uh, on LinkedIn uh, and the other social media channels as well. We're fairly uh, easy to get a hold of. We're based in uh, the industrial space, co-working space there, as you know, in Drinkwater Boulevard, Old Town Scottsdale. Because you live closer there. You would be at back six <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> right? 
<laughs> yeah, I guess I was responsible for finding the spot. <laughs> Great. So thank you to my co-hosts for the show, Scott McIntosh, and for Sherman Chu and Brian Burns for being on the show today. Until next time, we are off to continue building better communities where people and businesses thrive. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to the Future of Work Water Cooler Conversations with your hosts, Jen Burrell and Kyle McIntosh. Each episode shines the spotlight on business leaders who are defining what a healthy and productive workplace looks like in Arizona and beyond. To be part of the conversation, schedule a visit of the Max 6 Entrepreneurial Center in Tempe, Arizona, and connect with us at max6.com. Remember to like and subscribe to the Future of Work Water Cooler Conversations on Apple Podcasts.